It would be helpful if you could flick back to Isaiah uh, 41, verse 21, if you've uh, uh, lost it since then. And also, you should have been given an outline at the beginning of the service, and that might help you as we go uh, through the sermon uh, to keep track of things or to make notes. Uh, So do grab that. That's just on the inside of the notice sheet you were given. Justice. It is something that we have very close to our hearts. There's evidence for this everywhere. It's in our reality TV programs where we see police solving terrible crimes, bringing criminals to justice in real life. It's in our films. I went to see the James Bond film the other day. It's it's very good, by the way. As usual, the plot is full of twists and turns. The baddies do terrible things, cause you to really dislike them. But at the end of the day, by the end of the film, James Bond has swept in. He's righted all the wrongs. He's brought the baddies to justice. He's made them pay for their treacheries. You never see a Bond film, or rarely any other film, which shows the villain getting away with his crimes, getting away with his misdeeds. And that means something. It means that people care about justice. We witness people crying out every day in our world. Aid groups protesting about the millions starving in the third world. We cry out for justice in our own lives when we are wrong done by. When we suffer and we can't work out why. Quite a number of people believe that God doesn't even care about justice. About righting the wrongs like James Bond does in his films. Well, today, we're going to see God's justice in his word. What he is doing about the injustice in our world. But first, we need to set the background. The background to Isaiah. Isaiah lived in a time when God's people were split into two separate kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, We don't have time to look at how that happened right now, but for those who are taking notes, you can look it up in 1 Kings 11 and 12. Look it up later. Now Isaiah himself was one of God's prophets. He was sent to warn Judah, the southern kingdom, of a terrible judgment. They were facing exile from the land of God that he had given them. They were going to be dragged off and enslaved under another nation. Why? Because of their unfaithfulness, for continually breaking God's law and worshipping false gods. It was a punishment they had been warned of before they even entered the land they had been promised. That if they didn't serve God faithfully, they would be exiled, taken off to another land and enslaved. So Judah was facing this terrible judgment. And God knew that when they were in exile, they would start to cry out for justice themselves. They'd think that their God had abandoned them. So God in his mercy gives them a message of hope. News of a restoration. The restoration which would be brought about through a mysterious figure known only to Isaiah as the servant of the Lord. We'll see today that he is the one through whom God would establish justice. 
But Israel aren't the only ones that God is concerned with. He cares for his whole creation, for the whole world. Ever since the sin of man uh, entered in the story of the Garden of Eden, rebellion against God and against his word, ever since that day, God has been working to restore order, to restore justice to his world, to see justice done in his creation. It's not only his people who are guilty of injustice. All the other nations throughout the whole world were as well. And that's what we're going to see in the first part of our passage today. So come with me to Isaiah 42, verse 21. We're entering into a court scene. See how verse 21 starts? Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. The Lord has summoned all the nations of the world to court. We know that from Isaiah 41, verse 1. But at the moment, he's just numbering himself amongst all the other gods of the nations. That's why he's given himself the title, just Jacob's king, the title by which they would know him. And the nations are called to present their idols, the images of the gods they were trusting in. And a test is proposed. The idols are asked to predict the future. Verse 22 onwards, look with me. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. Well, this shouldn't be too hard for a god to do, should it? To take past circumstances and from them work out what the future would hold. Well, they should be able to do far better than that. They shouldn't have to look back in time. They should be able to just tell the future. So the question is put to them. Declare to us the things to come. And just in case they can't manage it, they're told simply to do something. Just something, good or bad, that the people might be dismayed. So the Lord waits and waits and waits. You can imagine a very, very long, eerie silence. One of those moments where you can hear a pin drop, a bit like now. And finally, after some time, God steps in as the judge. And this is his verdict. Verse 24. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. Less than nothing. These idols, they don't even exist. Their works are worthless. They can't accomplish anything. Worse than that, whoever chooses them, or in other words, chooses to trust in them, are described as detestable in the judge's sight. Well, so much for the gods of the other nations. Now it's the Lord's turn. So what does he do? Well, he does what the idols could not. He announces the future. Verse 25. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes. One from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. The one who would come from the north would be King Cyrus. In 538 BC, he would conquer the Babylonians. 
the Babylonians were the ones who were going to take Judah into exile. But not, notice, not only did, he, did God predict the future, predict the coming of King Cyrus, he determined it. Look again at verse 25. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes. God is saying, I will do this. It will be my work. And then he goes on to affirm how he alone predicted this event. Verse 26. Who told of this from the beginning so that we could know, or beforehand so that we could say he was right? He doesn't bother to wait for an answer from the idols this time. He just answers himself. Continuing, verse 26. No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good tidings. Not one word is heard from the idols. When God looked at them, they couldn't answer. They were rubbish gods. They could not offer help to the people trusting in them. They couldn't even speak. So the judge gives his second verdict. Verse 29. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Wind and confusion. These idols lack any substance. They represent no one. They're utterly meaningless. This court case exposes their absolute worthlessness. But more than that, it exposes the folly of the nations. The folly of the people who were trusting in these idols. These non-existent gods. Remember how the judge viewed them? End of verse 24. He who chooses you are detestable. The nations were in serious trouble. Instead of recognising the Lord as the true God of all things, they were worshipping images that represented nothing. The Gentiles, the other nations, were just, were as unjust as God's people because they were not giving him the glory he deserved as the creator of all things. Here was a huge miscarriage of justice. The God who created everything, who alone was sovereign, who alone was worthy of praise, he had been robbed of his glory, and instead it was being given to his creation, idols of wood and steel. Well, God would not put up with this injustice, this robbing of his glory. 42 verses 1 to 9 tell us how he would work to establish true justice. A justice concerning both his people and these Gentile nations. A justice he would accomplish by his servant. So our next heading, God means to restore justice, the servant. And we're going to look at the servant under three headings. The attributes of the servant, the mission of the servant, and then finally the identity of this servant. So first, the attributes of the servant. We're going to be going through this quite quickly. We're told several distinct things about him in the first verse of chapter 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. 
I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So the first thing we're told about this servant is that he'll be upheld by God. The word for uphold in the Hebrew means to grip fast. God would not let his servant go. He's going to keep his servant. He's going to ensure that the servant's task would be carried out. Nothing is going to cause his servant to fail in his mission. Secondly, he is chosen by God. This servant is incredibly special to him. He's as special as Israel were, his chosen people, whom he chose himself. There'll be a great level of intimacy between God and his servant, the chosen one. Thirdly, we're told that God delights in his servant. He's going to be greatly pleased with him. God had used people as his servants in the past who hadn't pleased him. Again, Israel are an example of this. They had displeased him greatly, breaking his law. But this servant was different. He would not deviate from God's will at any point. Israel had been incredibly unfaithful to his word. But this servant would honour God's word perfectly. Finally, we're told that God would put his spirit upon him. The spirit would empower him to do his ministry. This was a privilege reserved for God's supreme commanders, such as King David, key leaders of Israel who ruled his people under him. This servant was going to have a really important role as a leader of God's people. And God himself would be working by his spirit through him to accomplish his purposes. But to what end? To what end would God minister through his servants? That brings us on to our next heading, the mission of the servant. We're given the answer three times in verses 1 to 4. It's very clear. Look with me. Verse 1. And he will bring justice to the nations. Verse 3. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. And verse 4. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. The servant will bring God's justice. What does that mean? It would mean God, through this servant, would restore all things under him. Through him, he would restore the order of his creation which had been skewed by man's sin. God would once again be recognised as the Lord of all things. And all injustice would be dealt with permanently. This was a colossal work. How was the servant going to do it? Well, we're not told exactly how he will do it, but we are told how he won't. Verses 2 to 3. He will not shout out, shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. So this servant wasn't going to achieve his mission through an occupation. It wasn't by a revolution that he would bring in this justice. We're told he won't even shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. No, instead his ministry would be marked 
by meekness, by humbleness. He would be gentle, supporting those who are very fragile. The bruised reeds, the smouldering wicks, they picture the state of those people who he comes to serve. Have you ever tried to revive the flame of a smouldering wick? You have to be so careful. Too much or too little breath, and it will go out like that. And this servant would be subject to the same pressures that these people whom he comes to serve will face. It's implied in verse 4 that he will face great trials during his ministry, but he will not yield. Read with me. Verse 4. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And then we're told, verse 4, in his law, the islands will put their hope. God's servant was bringing a new law. This is something that would have caused Judah's ears to prick up. Remember how God revealed his law to his people, Israel, through Moses at Mount Sinai during the Exodus? This was a milestone in salvation history for God's people. It was by obeying that law that they were given that they were to receive the blessing of God's rule. They had failed totally in keeping that law due to their own sinfulness, their own rebellion against God. But now God's people are being told of another law, one that will not only bring hope to them, one that the islands, the Gentile lands, will put their hope in as well. The Gentiles who in their folly were worshipping those false gods, those empty idols, the ones that couldn't even speak. But look who it is who's doing this work in verse 5. This is what God, the Lord, says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who brings breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. It's not the idols who will establish justice. It is the Lord of all creation who will do it. He was the one who would call his servant. He was the one who would establish justice to the nations. Now in verse 6, he speaks directly to his servant. No doubt while the idols and the nations uh, are all listening in. Read with me. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. God was going to establish a new covenant in his servant. He would make him, his servant, to be a covenant for his people. Not only that, but this servant would bring light to the Gentiles. God was going to reveal himself through him. To all these other nations. It's in the servant that they will receive spiritual sight. That they will be able to recognize the creator of all things. The true Lord. The true God. They'll be released from the dungeon of darkness. Their ignorance in worshipping these false gods. These empty idols. In other words. In this servant. 
God was bringing salvation to both his people and the nations. So who is he? Who is this servant? Well, we're going to be leaving Isaiah behind for a little bit. We're going to be going forward to our New Testaments to answer that question. Uh, The verses will be up on the screen to help with all the flicking. So finally, the identity of the servant. This prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And we see this affirmed in several places in in the Gospels. Firstly, there's the account of his transfiguration in Luke's Gospel. After Jesus had met with Moses and Elijah on the mountain and been transfigured, the disciples, in response, make the suggestion to build a shelter for each of them, for Moses, for Elijah, and for Jesus, as if they were all on the same level. But God himself declares to them, No, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. God was declaring Jesus as his chosen one. He's quoting words from Isaiah 42, verse 1. He is saying that Jesus is this promised servant, the one who would restore Israel to be a light to the nations. So the disciples were to listen to him. Moving on in Matthew's Gospel, when given the account of his baptism, which should be up on the screen as well, we're told that the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and God declares again, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now the first half of that statement, this is my Son, refers back to other Old Testament uh, prophecies of how Jesus was God's promised King. But the second half, with him I am well pleased, that's a translation of verse 1 in Isaiah 42 again. Jesus was the servant in whom God delighted. With him, he was well pleased. Finally, in our New Testament reading today, Matthew himself quotes Isaiah 42 when referring to Jesus. Aware of this, sorry, Matthew 12, 15 to 21. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from the place. Mano followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then we see Matthew quote Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Jesus warned those who he had healed not to tell anyone about him. He knew his mission wasn't to begin a political movement. It wasn't to start a revolution, to try and overthrow the Roman Empire, the rulers of the time. He wasn't going to crawl or cry out. He wasn't going to be heard in the streets. The road he had to walk was not one of human triumph. No, he was this humble servant. He knew that the cross was where his victory lay. Instead of exalting himself, he died for those he came to save. He took the punishment that sinful men deserved. And in doing so, he established God's covenant, the one that God's promised servant would bring. He lived the perfect life. He was faithful as a servant whom God delighted in. 
But then he faced God's justice for their wicked rebellion, for both Israel and the Gentiles, in himself, on the cross. It was through hoping, or in other words, trusting in his death and resurrection, that these unfaithful Israelites, constantly rebelling rebelling against their God, and the idolatrous Gentiles worshipping false gods, would have their blindness lifted, would be freed from their captivity to sin, allowing them to worship the true God. Friends, can I just remind us that this is an incredible privilege to live beyond the cross. We live not in a time of mystery, where like Judah back then, would have to look forward to a promised hope. We don't have to wait, not knowing who this servant of the Lord would be. No, instead we can look back to the time when the servant did come. But we're not just to look back. We're to look forward as well. Because God's justice, as I'm sure we know, has not come in its fullness yet. We still live in a world of great injustice. But one day, everything will be judged. The same servant, Jesus, who brought us that salvation from sin, he's coming back. It is through him that God's final justice will be executed. His judgment on all things making all the wrongs right. Everyone will be brought to account. And those who are not already trusting in the work of the servant, trusting in him to take the justice they deserve for their sin, God's punishment on their sin, they will receive it themselves on that day. I visited Cambodia last year. While I was there, I had the opportunity to see the mark that the Khmer Rouge left on that country uh, 25 years ago, uh, before they were disbanded. They were a brutal regime who caused great atrocities in that country. Sanitary conditions were still terrible in many places when I visited, 25 years on. Thousands lived in a poorer state than even I could imagine. Many of the leaders of the Khmer Rouge are still alive today. But they're not in prison. They're residing in luxury. After committing heinous war crimes, murdering thousands, they haven't been punished. And we might ask, well, where's the justice in that? These men are living peaceful lives in their home country. It doesn't seem like they're receiving the punishment they deserve. Justice isn't being done here. But friends, there will be justice. When Jesus, God's servant, returns, everyone will be brought to account. No misdeed will go unanswered. The servant's justice will be thorough and complete. Back to Isaiah. And we've come to the end of the trial. The judge is making his final statement, verses 8 to 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. 
See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. The case is closed. The Lord is worthy of all praise. He's not going to allow anyone or anything to rob him of it. It is he who has declared his servant, the one by which he will judge all things, bring all things to justice. He announced the new things that he would do hundreds of years before they were to happen. And they have happened in part. We are proof as Christians today, meeting here. We're among the Gentiles who have put our hope in the law of the servant, part of God's new covenant, in him. But one day, God's justice will come in its fullness, through that same servant. He will hold all things to account, and true justice will be done. Are we ready for that day? Are we trusting in the work of the servant? Have we put our hope in his law? Or are we still facing God's justice for our sin? Are we looking forward to, or are we fearing the servant's return? We will have to face his justice one day. Either we're trusting in the servant who has taken that punishment for sin in our place, or we'll face it ourselves. Don't refuse the servant. It's only in him that we can be rescued from God's judgment, his justice, on our rebellion against him. For those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Saviour and our Lord, are we taking his law to the nations? We live in a world where there are idols on every corner. It could be a statue, it could be a sports car. There are so many people still living for false things. So many are in the folly of not knowing their God, like the Gentiles that we saw in our passage. Still enslaved to sin, without hope. Will we take this message of hope to them? Why not take advantage of the Christianity Explored sessions that are running at the moment? You can see Chris about those. That's a great opportunity to introduce our friends to Jesus. Or what about the guest dinner that we're going to be told about later, which will be held on the 16th? be a fantastic opportunity for our friends to hear the truth about Christmas, about, Christ, about God's Son coming uh, to save us by, take the punish, by taking the punishment himself for our sin. Will you invite your friends, your families, your work colleagues to that? that they might have hope. We should be making every effort to share the law of the servant, the wonderful news of God's justice being paid for us in Jesus. What about us? Are we continuing to live for our Lord? Or are there idols in our lives vying for our attention? If so, are we giving them our attention? Maybe we're not sure what these idols are. Uh, a wise man once told me there's an easy test. Ask yourself honestly, what can't I live without? 
What could I not bear to lose? Whatever that thing is, if it is earthly, if it is of this world, that's an idol. We mustn't be returning to the folly of idolatry. But instead, we should be remembering the one who is worthy of all praise. And so living for him, through Jesus, his servant, who he so graciously provided to receive the justice for our sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you did send your servant, as you so faithfully said you would, uh, to justify uh, the nations, to reconcile us in his body. Thank you that when Jesus died on the cross, we were forgiven. He took the justice uh, for our sin. Pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness to take his law out uh, to the Gentiles, to all the other nations, uh, to the people in this country who so desperately need to hear it and so be saved. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.